All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. You're listening to the Triple SM Timeout Podcast, a show where we talk with leading surgeons about how they got to where they are and some of the key lessons that they've learned along the way. My name's Jason, and on today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Martin Richardson, who's an orthopedic surgeon working in Richmond, Melbourne. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners for those who might not have heard of you before? Yeah, I'm Martin Richardson. I'm an orthopedic surgeon here at uh, the Epworth Hospital in Melbourne, also a surgeon commander in the Navy Reserve, and some people even call me the singing surgeon. Uh, one of my hobbies is, is musical theatre. Fantastic. If you could take us through your morning so far, what's your day looked like? Yeah, so a little bit un- unusual in that we're in this COVID-19 time. So uh, normally it would be an all-day operating session on a Friday. But uh, fortunately, time rich at the moment to have a chat with you guys. Um, is there anything that you are reading or listening to at the moment that you'd recommend? Recommend. Okay, I, I, I love the uh, Key Lime podcast. It's uh, key literature in medical education for uh, presenters out of the Canadian College of Surgeons and Physicians uh, who run a uh, journal club on the latest in medical education and critique that. Uh, love those. They sort of have fun, you know, good good interaction and jibing between the, uh, the presenters and uh, good learning. If you had to pick one thing that you couldn't live without, what would that be? Footy, mate. We're really missing the footy, I uh, know. Uh, Richmond, no due for, for going back to back and we're, we're missing the lack of the AFL. And I guess for our, for our listeners as well, you're not in Prof's office, but lots of Richmond jerseys. I see a Dustin Martin poster, Kochi's up there as well. And overlooking out from the office, we can actually see Tigerland and the G. So we're in a good spot for footy and I guess you've picked a good spot to have an office as well. <laughs> if there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what would it be and, and why? Uh, long ago when I was a fourth-year medical student, we uh, did have crossroads in our career. We uh, were training very hard for athletics. I was a race walker at the time, and we, we came fifth in the Olympic trials for the LA Olympics uh, in 84. The first three went to the LA Olympics in the 20-kilometre walk, which was my event. And the guy got fourth and the guy got sixth, came first and second in the 50K trial. And they also went to to LA. So it was that time point uh, where you thought, do I go to the Institute of Sport and uh, go along to to, uh, Seoul in in 88? Or do I become a a surgeon and sort of stay the path? And in those days, it was all amateur sport. And so the decision was relatively easy. Uh, I never regret that decision, but I think, you know, if I was doing medicine now, I think the possibilities of doing both sport and and uh, your career uh, are more possible. Mm. Is sport something that you've been passionate about ever since you were a child? Yeah, no, always playing sport through school and, and uni. And I think that balance between you no know, study and, and exercise and sport are really important. In terms of your interest in sport, when did you start becoming involved with athletics? Yeah, so little athletics was uh, around in those days. And uh, when I was about 12 or 13, I seemed to be able to beat everybody race walking. Couldn't beat everybody with the other things. So uh, race walking became the, the career path for the track and field. 
And in terms of race walking, is that something that you continued on through high school or was there ever a time when you maybe tried something else? I certainly played every sport, you know, cricket, footy, all those sort of things, but I'm not all that tall, you know. But in, in, in the days when I was growing up to, to be an AFL footballer, you had to be a bit taller and you know, take a good mark and that sort of thing. And I was probably just a fraction short to be an AFL uh, footballer. Enjoyed playing it, but uh, was never going to have a career as an AFL footballer in those days but uh could could match it with all of the um the others in, in the race walking and definitely continued that through high school and into university mm-hmm. uh, competed for melbourne university at uh, a number of the national uh, games and got got a half blue at melbourne uni for for winning the uh the national race walking uh, at a couple of uh, competitions that we went to interstate in terms of your interest in orthopedic surgery do you feel like part of that was contributed to by that interest in sport? Yeah, most definitely. So in year 11, uh, I injured my ankle and put me out of a season of athletics and went and saw an orthopedic surgeon who got me back on track and back on the track. I made my decision in year 11 that I was going to be a surgeon. So that uh, made the rest of the career uh, path a lot easier. I knew exactly what I had to do with every step to, to get where I wanted to get. Let's rewind a little bit more to your childhood. Where did you grow up? Born and bred in Melbourne, so I grew up in Edithvale, uh, Bayside. Went to primary school at Edithvale Primary. Started secondary school at Mordialic High School and then finished uh, my, my secondary school at Halebury out at Keysborough. What did your parents do for work? So both teachers, father a science maths teacher, mum was a teacher librarian, both uh, you know, in schools down, down the, uh, the Bayside. As a, as a child, you're at home with, with mum who's, who's a teacher librarian, were you much of a reader? Oh, I think mum would have been a little bit disappointed in my, uh, my reading capacity. I got better as I went along, you know, certainly when it came to year 11, year 12, English was certainly not my favourite or my best subject, but I did sort of knuckle down toward the end there and you'd read around the topic and if there was a novel for English that you had to read, you certainly by year 11 and 12, uh, Mum brought another couple of novels by the same author so you could read around the topic. But I'd say, no, maybe as a teacher librarian that would be the one thing that Mum would be disappointed. I wasn't a great reader of that sort of thing. So it seems like you'd sort of describe yourself as more of a math science oriented student. We'll move on and talk a little bit more about life after high school. So you started at Melbourne Uni and you graduated in 1986. And as you, as you mentioned, you were quite involved with university sport. There was a key point, you said in 1984, when you were considering pursuing sport compared to medicine. The um, juncture there, the, the Olympic trials in 84, uh, where we almost made it into the team, was you know, a time to reflect and think about you know, uh, what would it take to uh, get in the Olympic team four years later and what it would have taken would have been, I think, uh, putting your studies aside for a few years and going to the Institute of Sport, which was reasonably new at that stage. You know, Malcolm Fraser set up the Institute of Sport after our disaster in uh, Montreal in 76. To make it to the, the Olympics, I would have needed to have uh, focused on that and gone to Canberra and gone to the Institute. I chose not to, and I don't regret that decision. I continued you no know, competing and you know, did well in national championships well into my residency, but uh, recognised that to actually excel, I would have taken a slightly different path. 
What drew you to medicine coming out of high school? Yeah, so 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 mine was, was the injury I had in year eleven that sort of put me off the track, and uh, going and seeing an orthopedic surgeon and getting that fixed and getting back on track was an eye opener uh, to me. I think the other thing that I'd enjoyed uh, at, at high school was uh, was accounting. I thought, okay, you know, this might be a reasonable career path, maths or accounting, actuarial stuff, become a chartered accountant, something like that. So I think you know, in year 10, the opportunity to go and do a couple of weeks uh, work experience uh, is, a, is a great thing to do. And so I went and uh, did it with an accountant uh, for a couple of weeks and uh, looked and thought, this isn't what I want to do for my career. Uh, and uh, so that was a great experience. You no, know, learning what not to do is as important as you know, seeing something that you know, is, is a positive thing that you want to do. And so that was good. It sort of you know, scrapped that off my uh, potential possibilities. And, and then you know, in year 11, you know, having the light bulb moment of, wow, you know, getting someone who had a, a problem with their health fixed and, and back able to do the things they want to do. That said, yeah, medicine's the way to go. And you know, particularly for me, you know, hands-on approach and all that sort of thing, surgery was going to be that direction in medicine that was going to do it for me. So you knew going into medical school that the, that the goal for you was to become an orthopaedic surgeon or a surgeon of some sort? Correct. And again, I, I accept that, that that's an uncommon sort of scenario. Most uh, students don't really cement the path that they want to go down until they're well into their medical studies or possibly even in early sort of uh, postgraduate years. But uh, for me, I'd made the decision in year 11 that that was sort of the path. So it made it easy then once you're in medical school and the early postgraduate years to focus the direction you were going. And that certainly made my uh, career pathway a lot smoother. For those listeners who feel like they have had a similar experience that's helped them to set their eyes on a particular career, at the time when you were a medical student, how did you go about thinking about how you would get to where you were? Like, is there any sort of planning that you did? I think that the key there is is to find a mentor that can help to guide your, your pathway. And so knowing the direction I was headed, the Royal Melbourne Hospital, which is where I did my clinical years as a medical student, the head of orthopaedics was a, a chap called Kevin King, who very much shaped my whole career and making connections with Kevin as a medical student and then doing my early PGY years at Royal Melbourne after that. Kevin was able to help mentor my progress, help me get the surgical jobs, particularly uh, orthopaedics and plastic surgery. You know, the, the time I did as a PGY uh, junior surgical uh, trainee, uh, in plastics was uh, was fantastic. Interestingly, you know, in second and third year PGY, I did some plastics. The people there, Ian Taylor and Russell Corlett at the Royal Melbourne, were amazing and almost turned my head from orthopaedics. But then I reflected as to what a normal plastic surgeon would do for a career and make their living. And that's make the world beautiful. And my uh, reflecting on on my personality and all that sort of thing, I recognised that sort of dealing with people who wanted to be made more beautiful uh, when you know, the plastic surgeons do a wonderful job, don't get me wrong, but to uh, satisfy many of the people wanting to be made more beautiful, 
uh, is a real challenge. And I don't think my personality would have dealt with those people as well as it does uh, in you know, making people who want to get back on an athletics track or back on the golf course with a hip replacement, etc. My personality suits that well. I continued my orthopedic path even when you know, there was temptations to sort of go down a plastic surgical career. But the plastic surgical training was invaluable for my orthopedic career that uh, handling the soft tissues well makes uh, your orthopedic uh, surgeries perfect and that if uh, you ask someone not knowing that much about orthopedic surgery, what an orthopedic surgeon does, they'd see them as the carpenter who'd sort of have the hammer and the nail and sort of bash in the the, uh, hip replacement or... uh, uh, screw uh, a plate on a broken bone. And yes, we do that sort of thing, but without that uh, soft tissue handling and the care of it, the surgical results are, are much better if you look after the soft tissues that surround the bones and the joints that you fix. In terms of that mentoring relationship that you had with with Kevin King, can you talk to us a little bit more about that relationship? So uh, Kevin was uh, you know, a real professional. He uh, was one of the few orthopedic surgeons that had a very small uh, private practice in the day. And so he was very devoted to the public hospital system and made it work. And he certainly uh, was very good at taking young potential surgeons under his wing. And I wouldn't be the only person that he mentored through an orthopedic career. I think if you you speak to many surgeons of my ilk, now in Melbourne, you'll find many of them who uh, were touched by Kevin uh, and helped uh, along their career path. He was an amazing man. So you mentioned that he was quite a quite a professional. In terms of maybe some of the lessons that he taught you, was there anything else that you sort of still carry with you today? Very much so. So you know, Kevin cared about everyone who was under his wing. When you saw him dealing with you know, a difficult patient or something like that, and the care and the compassion that he had for that person, even if they were giving him a hard time at the at the time, was amazing. And I think, you know, one of the big, big things that I learned, learned from Kevin. But the other things that he also demonstrated was his care for his staff. Uh, and uh, at the Royal Melbourne at the time, we had most of the trauma stuff happening at the main base in uh, Parkville, But we also had a secondary offshoot at Essendon, which uh, Essendon Hospital probably doesn't exist these days. But we had a purely elective orthopaedic unit at Essendon, a whole ward, 24 beds, I think, with a couple of operating theatres devoted to just elective orthopaedic surgery. The the way Kevin balanced the the trauma stuff at the Parkville site, the elective stuff at uh, Essendon, we had waiting lists that uh, were three months for uh, patients needing elective orthopaedic surgery in the day, and that that was amazing. In terms of your own sort of journey with trauma surgery, we'll touch on that slightly later, but you said that your interest in orthopaedic surgery and, I guess, medicine or surgery as a career really began in year 11 when you had an ankle injury, but now you have a specific interest in the shoulder and the knee. In terms of that maybe more specific interest, can you tell us a little bit more about how that developed? So after the training that you get uh, in in surgery, it's a fairly general, all-over orthopaedic uh, experience. In my day, it was a four-year registrar training. It's now devolved to five years and maybe going to six with the uh, 
limitations of hours that you know, surgical trainees are able to work. In that four years, we got to experience the various segments of orthopedics, paediatrics, spine, shoulder, knee, etc. The, the shoulder and the knee were the things that sort of really uh, took my interest. And so after that basic registrar training, the opportunity to go and do a fellowship somewhere, whether it's in Australia, whether it's overseas, is something that you know, I'd encourage all surgical trainees to do. And because the shoulder and the knee were the areas that took my interest, I did a six-month fellowship with John Bartlett here in Melbourne at the Austin Hospital in Warringal. Uh, John was the preeminent uh, knee uh, expert at the time. And again, if you look around at people of my ilk, you'll find that most of the really good knee surgeons had done their fellowship with with John uh, at uh, Warringal. And then the second six months of training I did with Simon Bell, who uh, was at Monash Medical Centre and... uh, uh, Lineker and uh, and the Mercy at the time, and I did a six month shoulder fellowship with Simon, who you know taught me a great deal, and very grateful to both Simon and to John for that extra training. That you know, we get very good general training in our our registrar time in in the surgical training programs in Australia, but the extra training in that area of interest was very valuable from from John and Simon. In terms of a timeline, maybe this is around the mid-90s, you completed your orthopaedic training in 1994 and then you did those two fellowships immediately after that. Was that right? Uh, So 95, I did those two fellowships, six months with John and six months with Simon. And then the other thing that uh, I thought I might have been uh, interested in was being an academic. That academia might have been research lab-based. Winding back five years or six years In 1990, I took a year out of the surgical training to actually uh, do a Master of Surgery, which I did with Professor Bill Cole at the Royal Children's Hospital at the time, which was a purely lab-based research year. In the lab, uh, Bill was very interested at the time in a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta. And this condition at the time, they were just discovering what was causing uh, OI, uh, and uh, it was a defect in the uh, collagen 1 genes. Uh, and Bill was at the forefront of the biology of all of that, and I had the great opportunity to work a year with Bill and uh, his research associates in the research labs at the Children's, growing osteoblasts, analysing the extracellular matrix matrix they made, particularly the collagens, but also the extra, the um, non-collagenous proteins. I found that stimulating and, and interesting. So winding forward, I then arranged after my clinical fellowships with Simon and John to do a research fellowship in the United States in 96, 97, where I went to the Shriners Hospital in Portland, Oregon, USA, And the uh, lab there were very much into similar sorts of things to what Bill was, but this is now six years hence. So they'd moved on to the extracellular matrix and the collagens there. And there's a condition called achondroplasia, which uh, is the most common dwarfing condition. The lab was all set up to work out what gene had caused all of that. That was great. The guy, Bill Horton, who was the uh, head of the lab, in Portland, thought, great, 10 years of research, this is going to be great, we're going to work all this out. And within about six months, the answer came out. So the FGFR3, the 
fibroblast growth factor receptor 3 gene was found to be the cause of just about every case of achondroplasia. And that was great to work that out, and it sort of happened all very quickly. But what was looked at was going to be a 10-year research project came down to a 6- or 12-month research project. And that was fine. They looked at other things, and we were looking at various other dwarfing conditions, not as common as achondroplasia. And certainly I got some good experience of, you know, working with the team there and how they worked those sort of things out. But um, when I came home from that, it was interesting that the environment back in Australia wasn't very conducive to sort of supporting surgeon researchers and helping them set up labs and all that sort of thing. I think after experiencing two, two more years in the lab and realising my passion was actually treating patients, that my research interests have sort of gone more toward clinical than purely research-based things. So it was valuable. Again, I think as I explained that year of uh, that uh, time of work experience with an accountant showed me that no, what they do is valuable, but it wasn't for me. Doing the extra time in the lab uh, showed me that although I can very much understand the value of lab-based research and those sort of things, that that probably wasn't going to be my long-term career. In terms of your international experience at the Shriners Hospital in in the USA, was there anything that you took away from from that experience? I think that uh, the American system is different to to how we do things in Australia. It's a lot more regimented, a lot more hierarchical. In Australia, certainly once you have finished your training, the autonomy that you have at the moment in your specialist stream, whether it's orthopaedics or other, is a lot more... It's a lot freer, no? I suppose it reflects the society. Australian society is a lot freer than the United States society. And you know, talking with colleagues in various other uh, systems, it, I, I find that fascinating talking with colleagues about how their system of training, how their system of practising is different to, to what we have in Australia. And you know, we all sort of, when we stay in Australia, grumble about you know, how things are in Australia. But travel is so important to actually look from the outside back into Australia and see we have the best country in the world, the best system in the world. And I think to you know, summarise you know, where you're going with that question is, I think the autonomy that we have in Australia at the moment, uh, I think we, we have some risks to that uh, with you know, looking looking where things are going. I've come through maybe the Goldilocks time and uh, you know, the autonomy has has been there and I think I will continue to have that in my career. I sort of have some concerns about the the next generation that you know, some of that autonomy may be taken away. We'll lose some things as we lose that autonomy. Maybe just rewinding slightly to your time when you were a registrar on the program. Can you talk to us a little bit about maybe some of the, the ins and outs of that phase of your life? So I think, you know, when I came through and, you know, you hear your consultants now as they teach you, you know, the good old days when they we worked, the hours we worked, we certainly did work a lot of hours in, in those days, you know. There were weeks when I worked 100 hours a week and uh, was dead on my feet, tired. Coming back from Bendigo when I was up there as a second-year registrar and uh, wanted to come back and see my wife back in Melbourne, being so tired that I ran into a tram pole coming home uh, fortunately, didn't hurt myself, just, you uh, know, hurt the car. But, you uh, know, those hours that we were working, we were pretty tired and, you know, probably weren't fit to drive home some nights. I think the system has uh, started to address those issues now. 
The downside to that was, you know, the hours we were doing, we were certainly getting a lot of you know, hands-on experience with the hours limitations that are here now. I observe that uh, you will not see the full evolution of uh, a condition as you manage it in the system now. You will start the process or see the middle of the process or see the end of the process and then hand over to a colleague to sort of manage the other bits. For those that are good at joining up the bits and good at jigsaws, you will see each phase of that in your training. And if you're good, you will put those things together. The thing that I observe and uh, and I'm concerned about is for those that aren't good at putting jigsaws together, will miss the uh, experience that we got of seeing the start of it coming into emergency, seeing them in theatre, seeing the aftermath in the wards because we were there all the time. Now uh, you'll see a start, a middle or an end, hand over to a colleague. And unless you're good at sort of piecing together those pieces, you might not appreciate the whole evolution of a condition. find it really fascinating that, you know, you mentioned working 100-hour weeks. That's something that we don't hear about anymore. I'm wondering how you approached and maybe got through some of the more difficult times or if there was a particularly you know, challenging phase. You mentioned that your wife was in Melbourne at the time. When did you meet her? So as a fourth year medical student, my wife was uh, just starting doing her nursing training. And so as in the day, because you were doing your 100 hour times, you were at the hospital all the time and you know, often sleeping at the hospital in the residence quarters, which were co-located with the, the nursing training quarters. And so there was a lot more socialisation in those days between doctors and nurses, trainee doctors, trainee nurses, and uh, so that's how I met my wife. I think, again, that's something that's lost in the current system. As you come in, you clock on, you do your shift, you go home, and that camaraderie that we had in our day, you know, socialising and, and living together, are, are not how it is now, and so, so that is lost. As a second-year registrar, you'd often be travelling between Bendigo and Melbourne. Did you find that in terms of managing your relationship with your wife or your relationship with your family, I'm wondering how you balance some of the challenges around that? So so that was challenging at the time. You know, it did split up uh, families and that sort of thing. Um, but no, even now, you know, people as part of their training do, do time in the country. They're probably doing more time in the country now than they did in our day. It is challenging. If your partner uh, is able to sort of move to where you know, you're doing your country rotation, that's ideal. But when your partner has a, you know, a job that doesn't allow them to join you, it certainly um, adds to, to the friction, the challenge, etc. You've got Skype now. We didn't have Skype in those days, so it was a telephone call or have to get in the car and drive home for the weekend. As a sort of more senior registrar, what do you think those long hours really taught you? Resilient. You had to work out 40 uh, winks when you could, so if there was no time between some surgeries or you know, your orthopaedic trauma cases was bumped by a caesarean section, you found a quiet spot and you actually lay down and you got five or ten minutes rest before the nurse woke you up and you got going again. So I think taking the opportunities to, to get a bit of a rest uh, was, was, was a learning point. So if we again move forward in the timeline now to the early 2000s, you're working at RMH at this stage and you became the director of the trauma department at RMH from 2004 to 2008. 
Yes, yeah, so around about that time, I've forgotten the exact time, but the early 2000s, uh, a trauma review was done by the College of Surgeons and the uh, rate of mortality uh, in all the uh, emergency departments and hospitals around Melbourne was in the order of 20% for the severely injured patients. The uh, review was done at that stage and said, how can we do this better? And it was decided to delegate uh, two centres to be the place where you took all the very injured patients, the patients with an injury severity score of greater than 15, to have their management by teams that were used to just treating bad trauma. And they became the Alfred and the Royal Melbourne. And then we followed the results of those patients. And we found that mortality rate dropped from 20% to 10% if you went to a major trauma centre, the Royal Melbourne or the Alfred, uh, and it stayed 20% if you uh, were treated in one of the peripheral local hospitals or, or one of the country hospitals. And so I think that was very much a light bulb moment for how we should be treating the major traumas, and uh, that continues to today. Interestingly, um, Keith Willett, Professor Keith Willett from Oxford, uh, was a chap I met uh, as part of my international teaching with an organisation called the AO. And Keith had seen this uh, research evolving in Melbourne, took it back to the NHS in the United Kingdom. Five or ten years after we'd developed it in Melbourne, started to institute the same thing in the UK. And Keith now presents all around the world, acknowledging his uh, experience and uh, uh, insights that he got from the Melbourne system in inspiring him to do the same thing in the UK. And they've seen similar results, that they've concentrated the major trauma to major trauma centres in the UK, uh, where a transport of a patient uh, to a major trauma centre could happen within an hour. Uh, with a helicopter, um, landing pads at the Royal Melbourne and the Alfred. Anywhere in Victoria, you can get someone within an hour to one of those trauma centres. Obviously, in places like Western Australia, that's different. And um, the distances, you no, know, from northern Western Australia back to Perth, still a great challenge in our Australian trauma system. But in Victoria, you no, know, the same size as the UK, we've been able to demonstrate uh, how we can change mortality rates and halve them from 20% to 10% in these very, very badly injured patients. So in terms of your, your interest with trauma surgery, did that also start around the time that you finished your fellowships? So in, in orthopaedics, we, we do a lot of trauma surgery. Uh, and then as you know, I was coming back as a junior consultant, these changes were happening in the Victorian trauma system Royal Melbourne becoming one of the trauma centres and because I was interested in it, I sort of uh, evolved into being the, the, the head of trauma uh, orthopaedic surgery at the, uh, the Royal Melbourne. And then with my teaching interests, the organisation called the AO, which is the world international leader in trauma education, I became involved in the local Australian teaching part of that and then became involved in the international. So I'm currently one of the uh, regional education training team in Asia-Pacific and also uh, do a lot of training in uh, AO around the world. In reflecting on your role as the Director of Trauma at, at the Royal Melbourne, that role obviously carries a certain degree of responsibility. I'm wondering if you can maybe speak a little bit about how you manage those responsibilities and maybe your approach to that leadership position. 
So no, I think the, the, the leadership positions in these sort of situations is advocating for your patients primarily and, and for your staff to sort of make sure that the resources that you needed would be provided by the hospital administration to allow you to do the job you needed to do. Were there any particularly memorable events or cases that you saw as a director of trauma at RMH? No, there's no one particular case that sort of sticks in your mind, but no, being up all night fixing you know, this multiply injured patient with a team. So, so the beauty of trauma is it's a team game. And so you're often there with your plastic surgical colleague working out how you can save this limb or whether, you know, with your colleague making the right decision for the patient if they're so sick that saving their limb would compromise their life, you know, making the decision to actually amputate that, uh, that limb to save the rest of the patient. Obviously, you know, the other parts of the team are the neurosurgeons doing, you know, their work if the patient has an intracranial problem and then your thoracic uh, surgical colleagues and your uh, um, general surgeons doing stuff uh, in trauma laparotomies and stuff. So the, the team aspect of, of uh, the major trauma care uh, was, a, was a real focus. In a, in a previous life, you were still involved with a lot of team sports. I'm wondering what those experiences taught you about what makes an effective team and also how someone can take an effective role within a team. So teamwork is all about uh, leadership and also followership. I think uh, understanding that you know, that process particularly you know, with a multi-trauma patient is a dynamic process and that a leader at a certain time in the resuscitation of this uh, process may change. So initially uh, when the patient comes in, the leader is probably the anaesthetist, you know, uh, securing an airway, securing you no know, circulatory control that then may sort of evolve over to the next most important person. And if they're dying from you know, a catastrophe in their chest or their abdomen, maybe uh, the leader then becomes the person managing that side of things. And then obviously uh, in orthopedics, very important, you no know, limb fracture management but there are a few injuries in the orthopedic side of things uh, that are going to compromise the patient's life or their limb. So you may sort of be uh, uh, working out how you can temporise a limb injury, an open fracture or something, to allow the patient to live through their uh, catastrophic abdominal or chest injury and then coming back 12, 24, 48 hours later to do some more work on, on their limb fractures. On the topic of teamwork, a lot of people consider that there's no bigger team than the Navy and, and the Army, and you've um, been involved with the Australian Royal Navy. When did that involvement actually start? Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting thing. Toward the end of 2008, I'd sort of noticed that the waiting lists at the, the Royal Melbourne Hospital had grown to about five years for an elective orthopaedic procedure. I think earlier in the interview we talked about when Kevin King was running the unit and we had our standalone elective uh, orthopaedic unit at the uh, at, at Essendon. The waiting list was three months for, for elective orthopaedic surgery. Kevin retired in mid-2004 or so. And by 2008, the waiting list had blown out to five years. The Essendon Hospital had been closed. The trauma centre had been sent up at uh, the Royal Melbourne and was taking most of our available orthopaedic uh, surgical time. And the time we had to do our elective procedure dwindled 
and the waiting list blew out to five years. I shared my concern at that stage with the administrators at the hospital that this was a problem, that uh, no, there were solutions, whether it was to open Essendon again or a similar sort of elective place when I was having my uh, long service leave. So I said, I've said my piece, I'm happy to help you fix your problem. Please talk to me while I have my long service leave. And then by the end of the eight months of long service leave, no one had spoken to me. Took that as a sign as maybe they didn't care about that anymore and that uh, I needed a new challenge because I couldn't work uh, ethically in a place where the waiting list was five years. So a number of my colleagues who had been doing a lot of teaching with uh, on these trauma things, etc., uh, we're in the ADF and they'd been doing wonderful things in Rwanda and East Timor and uh, Solomon Islands, etc. And so I saw that as my next challenge. So I then uh, went through the process of uh, joining the Australian Defence Force, got through the Defence Force recruiting process and started my officer training in March 2010. So I've been in the Navy now over 10 years. And as you're alluding to, the Navy is an amazing team and I've had a great opportunity to serve uh, with the Navy. I went to Afghanistan in 2014 as a trauma surgeon in Kandahar, working with the US Navy there. The resources that the US Navy have to manage uh, trauma was just amazing. Done a number of other deployments. Uh, Last year, I was in Micronesia doing some humanitarian work, again with the US Navy as part of what we call Pacific Partnership. Uh, in uh, Chuk, uh, one of the island states of Micronesia, we were doing a lot of humanitarian work. Most of the orthopaedics there was not the orthopaedic elective surgery I see in Australia. It was draining uh, diabetic patients with septic arthritis or abscesses and that sort of thing and sort of opened my eyes again to what third world uh, orthopaedics looks like in a population where, you know, 80% of our uh, inpatients in our orthopedic unit were diabetic. The year before, I'd been to Vietnam, again with the US Navy on this Pacific partnership. They had their big hospital ship out for that past, uh, USN Mercy, which is currently in LA Harbour saving the Americans from COVID-19. It's an amazing piece of kit. It's it's a thousand-bed floating hospital, 12 operating theatres, and in nine days, part of the US... uh, Uh, orthopedic team there we did 80 joint replacements in nine days uh, which was amazing so again that was more sort of first world although you know we did some of the cases on board mercy we did two-thirds of our joint replacements actually in the vietnamese hospitals which the sterility and those sort of things was i think uh, some of my uh, australian uh, scrub nurses would have had conniptions with some of the practices but we did some great work with them and i'm sure most of those cases went fine, but it was another valuable experience that I got that most of my colleagues wouldn't get because uh, I'm with the Royal Australian Navy and I get offered these wonderful, wonderful opportunities. And it sounds like that's also a constant theme, I guess, throughout your progression from high school to now, diversity of experience. It seems like your career has moved and changed depending on when you've tried something and maybe it hasn't worked out for you, sort of shifted directions. In the area of working with the Navy and also serving in Afghanistan, how did you think about dealing with fear and maybe dealing with uncertainty? I mean, at the moment, that's also quite topical, but I'm wondering what your perspective on that is. So I think the the Royal Australian Navy and the Australian Defence Force do a lot of things very, very good. Some some things 
uh, such as leadership and stuff. I've learned more from my time in the ADF than I have in my civilian health career. But what they also do very well is prepare you for a job that you're going to do. So before we went to Afghanistan, we had a week of force preparation up in uh, Sydney where all of the cohort, and it wasn't just health people, it was all of the other people that went with me to Afghanistan, uh, went and did our force preparation. And being retaught our weapons training, being taught uh, how to put on and take off our uh, body armour that, uh, you know, if uh, bullets were flying around would protect us. I suppose the, the similar corollary to what we're doing now today is the PPE that all the people are having to put on in the emergency departments, the intensive cares to protect them from COVID. We uh, were trained on how to put on our our body armour and how to uh, take it on and off quickly and all of those sorts of things. So the preparation that the Defence Force put us through set us up well for when we went into this dangerous situation. Again, when we were there, you felt very well protected by the people around you. Everyone looked out for each other. And uh, uh, again, it was a real team, I suppose, sums it up well. Your mates would look out for you and check on you and all those sorts of things. And uh, that's what got us all through, I think, in our time. There are a lot of parallels between, you know, even the structure of a, a military organization like the Navy and the way that, you know, there is sort of a, a hierarchical structure and also leadership structure within hospitals as well. You said your time with the Navy taught you a lot about leadership. What have you learned from the Navy that you've applied in your own practice at the moment? I think, you no, know, the Navy pride itself on, on the leadership training. And so through my 10-year career, I've had at least five formal training periods, workshops and and extended workshops where we have time to focus on those activities. The Navy take that very seriously and have people within the Navy that are trained to actually guide you in these leadership explorations, helping you reflect on how you might lead yourself in certain situations. The leadership skills that I've got in the Navy I think uh, have certainly served me very well when I brought them back into the civilian situation. One of the other things that Navy has done really well is provided a coach for me. After each of these leadership workshops, Navy provide a one-on-one coaching for six months following any of these sessions. And it's something I'm passionate about trying to develop in health. We don't do that very well at the moment, exploring some possibilities about how we might be able to include that. I've got myself onto the CPD, the Continuing Professional Development Committee at the College of Surgeons. And at the moment, I'd be critical of CPD in health, particularly in surgery, that it's a tick box procedure. You go to a conference, you tick the box. You go to an audit meeting, you tick a box. That satisfies APRA at the moment. But I know APRA and the medical board are very keen to actually make continuing professional development more rigorous. And I think one way to do that is with a coaching model. What does coaching provide? Coaching actually provides some guidance, I suppose, on how to sort of follow through on the reflections and the feedback you may get from the activities you go to and tick the box. But the thing that it really does The one-on-one coaching is holds people to account. If you have a coach that you meet once a month and you talk about your goals and your aspirations and what you've learned from this learning experience, 
the coach is responsible then to say, okay, here's some homework to do between now and when I see you in a month. And you know in the back of your mind, you're seeing that coach again in a month and you've committed to do such and such for the coach being held to account and actually being, you know, at your next meeting with a coach asked, how are you going with what we committed to? And thinking, coach, I'm sorry, I've sort of uh, not followed through or be able to walk in there proudly and say, I've done this and uh, know what's my next uh, challenge, coach, is very, very valuable and I think is true CPD, continuing professional development. At the moment, we stop at the tick the box. I went to that learning experience. I'm sure many of us reflect on that but I don't think very many of us are held to account. It's very hard to hold yourself to account. If you've got someone like a coach holding you to account, that's, that's true CPD. So we talked a little bit about coaching and leadership, and I think another common vein that runs through all of this is the teaching and the mentorship that you've received. A few people have told me that you now as a professor through the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology, sometimes you take third-year undergraduate students from Melbourne Uni into theatre with you. So I'm passionate about education. As a surgeon, I can affect uh, a treatment for one patient at one time. A teacher, coach, a mentor can affect the management of multiple patients through their mentees, the people they teach, and have a positive effect on many, many more patients if you do more than just one operation at one time. So I'm passionate about that. So from doing the anatomy teaching that we do in the pre-med, the biomed stage, all the way through the stages of teaching the MD students and then the junior surgical residents, registrars, through to you know, my colleagues, I'm passionate about all of that. And I think I can affect change at all of those levels for the biomed students, you know, uh, teaching them anatomy with a, uh, a PowerPoint presentation for an hour, there's a little bit of knowledge there. Taking them to the operating room and seeing how a surgeon puts that knowledge into effect to uh, prove uh, an outcome for a patient hopefully has a profound effect of why we insist on teaching young doctors anatomy and why it's important uh, is something that you can really emphasise in the operating room. You've mentioned that you see a whole range of experience from undergraduate university students to maybe even final year registrars or consultants. When you're comparing those two groups, there's really junior students like us um, with the more experienced people who are further along in their careers. When you're comparing those, what do you think the key differences are and maybe how people change as they go through their career? So the assumed knowledge, you know, as the person uh, gets uh, further in their career, you can assume a whole lot of knowledge and build upon that. So uh, I think the art of being a good teacher, uh, a good coach, is to understand the needs of the person who's learning with you at the time. And so a key part of all this is to talk to the person who you're learning with at the time and understand their needs and teach to those needs and challenge them again, expecting a uh, undergraduate medical student to know the intricacies of a total hip replacement is uh, misguided. I'm sure you guys have had the experience of you know the teachers who sort of say, "Don't they teach you anatomy anymore in medical school?" Because you know you've forgotten some little fact that surgeons are using all day, every day. I think that is not understanding the needs and the 
where the student is at the time. The key to being a good teacher is understanding and putting yourself in the place of the learner, being learner-centred rather than teacher-centred, which certainly I think you can reflect on in your teachers. What's the thing that you like most about medical students? Their enthusiasm. Teaching an old dog new tricks is really hard, so that's sort of why I think at the moment we haven't done that part of things very well. No, Once we're consultants, we know it all. Well, guess what? We don't. And teaching a medical student who is hungry and thirsty for knowledge Uh, You guys are sponges, you're enthusiastic, and you can thrive on that if you understand the context and and the needs of the person at that stage. I'm wondering if you had any advice for medical students, how we can channel that enthusiasm that we have. How can we use that enthusiasm to look for opportunities to become more involved with what we might consider as a future career? So I think being proactive, actually seeking out opportunities One thing I've certainly learnt through my career is you generally only get asked once to do an interesting thing and if you say no or I'm too busy at the moment, that opportunity passes you by. If you have the alternate mindset of saying, yes, that sounds like a great thing to do, then work out how you make time in your busy schedule to fit it in has worked well for me. Not everybody's me, so I accept that, but uh, I think that The opportunities are often only offered once, and so it's worth considering saying yes and then working out how it fits and how you make time for it, rather than saying, oh, I'm just a bit too busy for that now. I hope that opportunity comes up again in the future. The risk is it won't. As an established orthopaedic surgeon, when you're thinking about your next challenge, what does that challenge look like for you? So at the moment, I think you've heard my passion about coaching. And I think that is the icing on the cake for learning, particularly for my consultant colleagues, my fellows. So my challenge now, I think, is to turn that into an academic pursuit, whether this might be a possibility to do a PhD around surgical coaching and uh, and, make that my next challenge. So in terms of your broader outlook and how you approach your life and how you approach each day, could you maybe take us into that mindset? Is there a particular way that you think about how you structure your days or how you set about trying to achieve those goals? So I think, as I say, you know, looking out for opportunities and uh, uh, keeping an open mind and having a yes mentality, working out how you can fit that uh, into your busy program is, is a mindset that I take. If you get stayed in your ways, which I think many of us can risk doing, then you're not going to continue to improve. I always have this self-improvement mindset of always wanting to be better than I am at the moment. When we look back and reflect on your career, what's one lesson that you wish that you would have liked to have learned earlier? So I think it, no, the, the key thing is is your family. And I think along the ways... Uh, with the hours that we did when we were trainees and uh, with the opportunities, you've got to be very careful that you remember those supporting you at home and uh, making time for them. The beauty of medicine is that we are well remunerated for what we do. We can spoil our families. So yes, we work hard, but I would also reinforce to you that we work hard and we play hard. And the play hard converts, I think, to having quality time with your family. 
um, in terms of where you are today, how much of that do you attribute to luck and how much do that of that do you attribute to your hard work? I believe in fate and I suppose they work together, that the opportunities are offered to you if you are willing to go that one step further. I've got my opportunities because I also you know, was open to, to working hard and taking those opportunities. And so finally now, after this interview, what would people find you doing on, on a weekend? Uh, interestingly, this weekend, uh, I'm off to be a contestant on The Chase. Uh, so uh, in our operating theatre, when we're doing a hip replacement or a knee replacement, uh, we cement the pieces in place. The cement takes 10 to 12 minutes to set. So one of the responsibilities of the um, company representative who's there helping us putting in the hip replacement is to get the quiz from the age or the uh, uh, son or something and the whole team, while we're waiting for the cement to set, does the quiz. So in January I was thinking, oh, no, that chase thing looks like fun. Went and did the audition and they've asked me to come along to, uh, to be a contestant tomorrow. So we're hoping we get Issa or someone like that to compete against and chase against. So that'll be fun. But the thing I'm missing the most is the footy. So I hope the AFL can work out and get, get some footy happening again soon. The other thing we do a lot of in the operating room is sing musical theatre. So again, uh, our musical theatre company is doing uh, Scarlet Pimpernel in October, assuming uh, COVID is lifted, the COVID cloud is lifted. So we're hoping we might be able to audition in July and get a, a part in the ensemble for Scarlet Pimpernel. But uh, who knows what COVID's going to do by then. And finally, in terms of those interests outside of surgery and outside of medicine, what's your advice to medical students who, in terms of like trying to sustain those throughout medical school and even throughout your training? So it's essential. You've got to have an outlet that, uh, again, you know, we work very hard in medicine, we study very hard, but if that's all we do, we're going to be pretty dull people and uh, we need to uh, have interests outside when we're interacting with our patients, you've got to have something else to talk about. If you just talk about their ills, then that's going to be a pretty uh, boring conversation. So you've got to be able to talk about other things that interest you. That means that you'll be interested in what the patient may have as a, 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 an interest, and it's essential. On, on that point, we might end. Thank you um, for providing us with a very detailed insight into your career along the way. And I'm hoping that this will be really insightful for everyone to listen to and to hear. So thank you very much. Been a pleasure and all the best with your careers. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode of the Time Out podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the future, please consider subscribing to the show on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. If you'd like to contact us or have any thoughts that you'd like to share, please do so via our Facebook page, The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would like to thank our two major sponsors for 2020, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support. Please find in the show description a link for the Department of Surgery's e-learning module entitled Pathways to Career Progression, as well as two links from MIPS for students. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would also like to thank Michelle Andrews 
who is the co-host of the Shameless podcast, for her support in helping us to put this program together. You can find the Shameless podcast on Apple and Spotify podcasts as well. This episode was edited by Karen Gunatilaka and Alex Grogan. Special thanks to Jenny Pham and Rashan Kari for their help in organizing today's guests. My name's Jason, and I hope that you'll tune in again soon.